me in turning to uh, or listen on as I read the conclusion of Romans chapter 11, which is also the conclusion, as I will argue, of the whole, uh, not just of Romans 11, but of Romans chapters 1 through 11, the sustained uh, exposition of the doctrine, which precedes the application of the doctrine. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 to the end in verse 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how and, and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And let us pray together. Our father in heaven. We praise you for this tremendous and mighty doxology and we ask you that now through the preaching you might begin to illumine it to our hearts and to our hands and to our feet. Help us and to our minds. Help us to know and to do and to live the kind of life which it brings about in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now to this mighty conclusion a conclusion of what well i've begun to tell you and i'll I'll say more but for now we'll just say this mighty this tremendous conclusion this doxology in many ways and you know i was thinking about this this morning what a text to begin uh the preaching ministry of the new year uh it's it's daunting in some ways In, in many ways i could say and this is my thought in many ways this is the greatest text in all of the bible Well, I hope that you understand why the preacher often feels that way about the text that he's preaching. But but there is something really special about these verses. Uh, They remind me of what the apostle says at the end of Romans 8. You remember there's another mighty conclusion there. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And he goes through this list of things and ultimately concludes that nothing in the whole uh, of the world, even in hell, or in heaven could separate us from the love of God. It is a tremendous conclusion. And the conclusion, if you know it, as you are going through Romans chapter 8, you continue to anticipate it. And so you might have noticed as I preached Romans 8, I kept concluding the sermons with the final verses. And it's the same thing here as you preach Romans 11. You can't help but but anticipating what he says at the end. You keep anticipating it. You realize that all of this will resolve itself in praise. But we've, we've reached the point uh, where we come to these verses, these mighty and yet daunting verses. And the same question confronts us here as before in Romans chapter 8 at the end. What led him to say it? And obviously we must say this much at least. What led him to say it was what he had just said in Romans chapter 11 verse 32. That he might have mercy. He consigned all in disobedience that he might have mercy on all. There uh, is the divine procedure. I won't expound it again, but let us realize that his last word, not just at the end of the doctrinal exposition of Romans chapter 11, but of the full exposition of chapters 1 through 11, is that he might have mercy. And you remember, I hope, or perhaps you don't, but I ended with those words, the wonder of those words, that he might 
have mercy. Those words in itself elicit praise, the mercy of God. Just think of it, to whom? To whom does God have mercy? Well, he has mercy upon undeserving sinners who deserve nothing but wrath. That is you and that is me. This is the great theme of of Romans. It, It is indeed the great theme of the whole of Scripture. The mercy of God in justifying guilty sinners. It is a theme to be preached. It is a theme to be expounded. It is a theme to be believed. But above all, it is a theme which ought to make the church praise God, even as Paul does here. Not only that. You remember I'm answering the question, what was it that led him to say this? But you see the context in which the mercy of God appears. God committing or binding up man in his own sin. He confined all the mercy uh, to, 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 to sin that he might have mercy. Verse 32. In, in order that his mercy might appear to be mercy indeed in the context. And even in the confines of sin. It's the same argument that you find at the end of Romans chapter 5 where he says, even as sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Notice the contrast. In what or against what does the mercy of God appear against the backdrop of sin? You see, what we're really considering are the ways of God. The way in which he shows his mercy And it's wonderful to consider Paul is saying it's the kind of thing that makes you say what Paul is saying here at the end of Romans chapter 11. But let us go further back and realize that what the apostle Paul says here in this doxology includes what he's been saying throughout chapters 9 through 11. The theme of Israel's rejection as well as her future restoration, the natural branches broken off. And yet on some future date to be grafted in again, the unfolding of the mystery, verse 25 of chapter 11. It's really wonderful to behold Matthew chapter 21, the Lord quoting uh, the prophet Isaiah, I think. Uh, Israel stumbled and she fell. It was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous to behold, he says in Matthew chapter 21. And yet might we also say, as we look off to the future. And say, equally wonderful will her restoration be. The ways of God are wonderful to behold. But there's something else to be said in answer to the question what led him to say it. And here commentators are divided into two camps. Either those who include chapters 9 through 11 only. Or those who include the whole of the epistle. And you already have my answer to that question. Which is it? It's the whole of the epistle. It is everything that he's been saying through all of his doctrinal exposition. Of course, the immediate uh, argument must be included, chapters 9 through 11, but we don't need to limit it to that. It really is all that he has said in this epistle, beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is the power of God to save. What, What is that gospel? Well, it's the gospel of justification. Justification by faith alone, the free pardoning mercies of God to undeserving sinners preached freely to all and all who call upon him will be saved. Romans chapter 10. It's the same gospel for Jew and for Greek. That's what he's been expounding all through Romans chapters one through 11. Uh, uh, Do we forget as well 
uh, how much I had to say and how much Paul has to say about the doctrine of assurance, Romans chapters 5 and chapter 8. We can't stay with this. Uh, my purpose in the, in the end here is not to summarize the whole of the epistle, only to call to mind the whole of the epistle and remind you that you must have the full scope of what has been said beginning in chapter 1 as you read these closing verses and before you come to the practical exhortation, which begins in chapter 12, verse 1. And so we're wrapping up the doctrinal portion. And we are ending with a note of praise before we begin to consider the subject of the Christian life and Christian living. Well, there's another question that's often asked, and that is, in essence, what is the Apostle Paul doing here as he praises God? How are we to understand the nature of these verses? And it's fascinating to notice how people sometimes approach this. Uh, and it's not just scholars who sometimes say this. I've heard I've heard even Christians sometimes say this. I, I, I'm afraid to say, I, I think I've even said this uh, before in my, in my earlier days. And that is uh, the common view that the Apostle Paul simply gives up in a point uh, and moment of exhaustion. He's taken the, the subject as far as he possibly can, considering the purpose of God, which cannot be overturned, Romans chapter 8, with respect uh, to Israel, chapters 9 through 11, He says it all. He can say no more. He's pressed the mystery as far as his great mind possibly could. And he simply relents in essence and says, I don't understand it myself. I cannot. I can only praise. And so there's a note of resignation here. He can go no further. I stop. I praise. In essence, this view suggests that Paul really didn't understand the mystery. He can only adore it. That's the idea. The mystery of chapter 11, verse 25. Do you see the problem with this? This was a mystery revealed to him by God. There is no question but that he understood it clearly himself and that he wished for us to understand it as well. Notice the terms of verse 25. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own eyes. The mystery was something that God had revealed to Paul as an inspired apostle And it was something that he was concerned for us to know as well. The problem is ignorance. And so we do not resolve the chapter in ignorance. He wasn't praising God, you see, for what he didn't know. He was praising God, among other things, for revealing to him this great mystery, for making him understand as much as the human mind could. So that this is not a man resigning himself to ignorance and giving up. Throwing in the towel and saying, I can't understand it. I only adore it. This is intelligent praise. Praise which arises not out of ignorance, but out of knowledge. Of course, part of this is acknowledging what you don't know. And we'll see that in the course of the praise. That our puny minds cannot match up to God's. But that doesn't mean that such praises we find at the end of Romans chapter 11 comes from a position of ignorance. It does not. It comes from a position of Knowledge, we praise God because of what we know, because of what he has revealed to us. Not from a position of ignorance, but from a position of knowledge. Well, we come next to the contents of the verses. Notice what he actually says. How is it that he praises God for what he knows or what has been revealed to him? We begin with the first statement, verse 33a. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How are we to understand what he's saying here? Again, we find opinions are divided. The question concerns concerns the term riches. And here's the question. Whether the term riches qualifies wisdom and knowledge or whether it stands on its own. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. And so there's two possibilities here, and you'll notice them in various translations. The King James or the New King James And this is the more familiar expression. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Do you understand what's being said? There is a depth of riches concerning the wisdom and the knowledge of God. There is an alternate translation that uh, many of you will find in your ESV, if that's what you have. And there uh, there is a depth concerning the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. So it's either the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge, or it is the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. Those are the alternatives. And uh, for my part, I would say there's no way to be sure. We can only say that both are possible. Uh, I'll tell you what I think. Looking at the Greek, I think, I think that the second translation makes more sense. I think that the apostle is expressing the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. That's what I think. And yet I could equally say that it is true to speak of the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. Both things are certainly true, but it isn't entirely clear what the apostle is saying. If we are to take riches as the first of three headings, We understand what the wisdom and the knowledge of God is. But if we were to speak of the depth of the riches of God, what are we talking about? We're talking about the riches of his mercy and of his grace. Oh, the depth of the riches of the mercy and grace of God. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. Oh, the depth of the knowledge of God. But however you take it, the real burden... And I hope this is already clear, but let me try to make it clear. The real burden of this initial statement in verse 33a is the word depth. There is a depth to God, to to God that is vast and unmeasured. Soon the apostle will say it is past finding out. There is a fullness in God that cannot be exhausted, whether you consider his riches or his knowledge or his wisdom. Go as deep as you like and you will never reach the bottom. It is a vast ocean that never ends, the depth, the fullness that is in God. And you see, all that Paul has been saying in the book of Romans enables us to see this, the depth that is in God. Oh, I look at his procedure of saving sinners and I am overwhelmed by the greatness, by the depth of what he has done. Who but God could have done this? What but the divine mind could have conceived of such a scheme of salvation? The more I consider it, what God has done in displaying his great, his vast, his unmeasured mercy to me, the more I behold it, the more I consider it, the more I survey it. Didn't we just sing that? The more I'm like Paul driven to superlatives. That is, I find that language itself fails me. I express things as strongly as I can. The riches, the depth, and yet I am unable fully to express what I feel and what I've beheld. How can I express the wonder of what I feel? 
I'm lost in wonder, love and praise. We sang that as well, didn't we? And so this makes him say, given such depths, verse 33b. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The theme here becomes, as John Murray states, the incomprehensibility of God's counsel. This is a question sometimes men will be asked in a presbytery exam before ordination. Is God incomprehensible? The answer is yes. Here's your text. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. His judgments are what he has decided to do. His ways are what he has done. And so first he decides to do something in his eternal decree, and then he does it. How unsearchable is judgment and his ways past finding out. That's what he means. His judgments are unsearchable for the very reason that they exist in the mind of God, which is not to say that they are unknown, therefore. To a very large degree, they are. The judgments of God are known for he has revealed them to us. Specifically with regard to man's salvation, the present subject, the judgments of God concern uh, what he has determined to do in eternity with regard to the salvation of sinners. And so to say they are unsearchable is not to say that they cannot be known. They can, for he has revealed them to us only that they can never fully be comprehended or understood by the human mind. Who can ever fully know or understand The mind of God. That's the thought here. You see, just as soon as he reveals something of his mind to us, we are placing our mind alongside of his. And we are considering things that we can never fully grasp. Never. All of eternity, we will give ourselves to the knowledge of God, to to knowing the judgments of God, to knowing the divine mind, as Van Til put it, to thinking God's thoughts after him. That is the business of the present. That will be the business of eternity. And you will never get to the point where you say, I know I have fully understood. You will ever, as your creaturely mind brushes up against the divine mind, you will ever uh, both grasp your own puniness and his greatness in comparison to you. You will never succeed in fully searching out And fully comprehending and fully knowing what God knows. How unsearchable are his judgments. We will search and search and search for all eternity. And still we will seek to know more. So to his ways past finding out. Again, the stress is not on what cannot be known so much So much as upon what is known, what he has made known, what he has revealed to us, what is known, but never fully comprehended. Never will we fully comprehend. We see God acting in ways in scripture and in providence that leaves us saying his ways are not our ways. That's that's a common refrain of Christians, isn't it? What we're saying is that. His ways are past finding out. This is the workings and the unfolding of the divine mind. This is what God has determined to do. How could I ever fully comprehend and grasp it? I see it. I understand it to some extent. I'm not saying I don't know the ways of God. I'm just saying his ways are past finding out. They're beyond me. They're too great for me. Now, just look at God's method of salvation. That's the ways of God, especially in view. And consider three things. That God should become man in order to save man. 
that the God man should die for man and that guilty sinners should be made just. There I've unfolded for you three mysteries that God has revealed to us. In the eyes of the unbeliever, three riddles that are never fully comprehended or even begun to. Or look at this, how he gives, this is verse 32, how he gives man over to sin only to save man in the end. He confines him in sin in order to show mercy. And what do we see in all these things revealed to us in scripture? But a display of wisdom that baffles the human mind. Do we understand why the apostle says in 1 Corinthians, and we'll see this tonight in Acts chapter 17, that the wisdom of man amounts to nothing in the presence of the wisdom of God. Oh, I can begin to understand the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God is something different. It is something entirely beyond it. It confounds the wisdom of man. It confounds even my own understanding as a new man in Christ. Go as far with this thought as you like. Go on considering the ways of God for all eternity, and you will never fully comprehend them. You will see over and over that human knowledge and wisdom fail in the presence of the judgments and the ways of God. And that nothing in all the world, nothing that God has created, can ever compare or comprehend the divine mind. Well, keep going with the argument. Verses 34 and 35, where we have a string of Old Testament quotations. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. And here, if, if it was God's, if it was God's incomprehensibility that was being stressed in 33b, here it is God's sovereign independence. His independence from what? The answer is from man. God's sovereign independence from man. In other words, and again, we'll see this tonight. He doesn't need man. Look at these three questions. Keep your eyes on them and listen to me. There's a strong element of ridicule present in what the apostle is saying as he rehearses the prophets. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? These questions are calculated as before. Uh, I mean earlier on in Romans chapter 11. To humble man to the dust. To silence his protest in the presence of God as with Job. The key thought here is. It was the same thought in Romans chapter 9. Who is man to question God? Who is man to imagine that God's ways and his judgments and his knowledge are subject to the scrutiny and the examination of man? Do you see? Well, let me read read first Romans 9 again. Romans 9 verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? And that's the same kind of question that is being asked here. Do you realize, as Paul will say to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, none of what God thinks, none of what he decides to do and none of what he does depends upon man in the least. Don't you see that? In other words, think of it like this. God isn't in heaven waiting for man to weigh in. He isn't waiting for man to approve of what he's done. No. Look at God as he's enthroned in heaven, as he's exalted 
for all eternity. He's worked out this tremendous plan. Romans chapter 8. He's devised the most wonderful way of saving sinners. Heaven itself stands in eternal wonder, ever praising the Lamb who was slain. And yet, imagine this. Man thinks his questions or his objections to this matter in the least. As though heaven is taken aback by what man thinks or says. Look at God in heaven. Conceiving of the most fitting expression to show forth the riches of his grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. That he might show mercy. The greatest wonder, do you realize? And surely you have realized this from time to time. The greatest wonder is that he does so at all. You see, just as soon as you say that he might show mercy, you are confronted with the greatest wonder of all. Psalm uh, Psalm 8, so often quoted in the New Testament. What is man that you're mindful of him? Why is it that you take such interest in man? You consider him as created? Uh, th- that in itself fills us with wonder. Why would God take such an interest in man as created? But now man has fallen as rebellious, as uh, full of hateful animosity to God. Man who is but sinful dust and ashes and the eternal Uh, The eternal mind, full of wisdom, devises a plan of salvation for man, that he might forever reign with God in heaven. You see, that's the greatest wonder. It's the thing, uh, as I say, that fills heaven with wonder and praise to this day. The angels look in on it with wonder. They don't fully comprehend it or understand it. Along with us, what is it about man, after all, that you take such great Interest in him. That you're at such pains to save him. But do you realize that as he does so. As he takes such tremendous interest in us. In saving us. That we are not in a position of those who have anything to offer to God. We are but dust and ashes and sinful at that. And that as God conceives this plan and achieves this plan of salvation, he's not waiting for us to weigh in. We do not have anything to offer to him by way of wisdom or counsel. We are, we almost sung this hymn as well. There were only so many great hymns we could sing this morning. But we are debtors to mercy alone. Covenant mercy I sing. That's what the Christian is. And that's why he praises God. Not because the Christian ever had or has something to offer to God. But because we're debtors to his mercy, we are those, as Jesus says at the beginning of the Beatitudes, who are poor, who are beggars, who have nothing to offer to God. Even when we've done our duty, we're at best, Jesus says, unworthy and unprofitable servants. And it is this thought, the unworthiness of man as recipients of salvation, the salvation that God himself conceived and achieved for man, that underscores the doxology. That I am nothing compared to to God. That I have nothing to offer to God. That God didn't ask me what I thought or what I wanted. And yet he saved me still. The greatness of what he's done is underscored by the vast unworthiness and unprofitableness of myself. If I were to be technical for a moment, and again I would invite you to look at Verses 34 and 35, I would notice that there is a contrast to what was said in verse 33. 
The scheme is this, and this might be another argument in favor of taking the threefold division instead of the two. Verse 33, there's a depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Verses 34 and 35, that scheme is inverted. So that it is, on the, on the other hand, we have the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. Verse 33, verses 34 and 35, we are compared to God. And where knowledge came last in the list, verse 33, uh, the knowledge of man comes first, who has known the mind of the Lord. And where wisdom came second, so it comes second here, who has become his counselor, the wisdom of man, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. Our, our, our ability to give something to him is contrasted to his riches in giving something to us. So the list uh, with respect to God is inverted with respect to man. Riches, wisdom, knowledge corresponds to mind, counselor given. And so then the thought is this. Pit what we know. Uh, that is our minds to what he knows first or our wisdom or counsel to his eternal wisdom and counsel. And third, what we have to give compared to his riches in the gift of salvation. And where does that leave us? You see, you don't just ask the questions, verses 34 and 35, but you ask them in light of what was said of him in verse 33. And it leaves us here as those who do not know and who need to be taught of him. What we need is his knowledge. You see, that's the contrast. He doesn't need our knowledge. What we need is his knowledge. That's the first point. And so, too, it leaves us as those who lack wisdom, whose counsel amounts to nothing. I don't care if it's the counsel uh, of Athens, of ancient Athens. It amounts to nothing. Did we ever once imagine God in his infinite wisdom needed our counsel? Did we imagine suddenly that we have become his counselor. Sometimes I wonder when I'm praying to God whether I've begun to think this. It's a question we should ask ourselves. Let me return to that point later. Or what about this? Do we see that we have nothing to give to him whatsoever? Nothing. Luther's dying words, we are beggars. It is true. That's the position of the Christian from first to last. Who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Who can claim God as his debtor? You see, we are debtors to mercy alone. It isn't the other way around. God is not our debtor, beloved. Are we not like this? As those who are debtors and beggars in his presence, as I've said before, and have nothing to offer him but what he has first given to us. Not as our wages or due, but as undeserving sinners. Salvation is the free gift of God. It is not man's wages. Romans chapter 4. And so all this, once again, is calculated. Let me keep saying this. Because we need to keep seeing this. To humble man to the dust. And the way that man is humbled to the dust. Think of Job again. Is not by considering his own wisdom. And his own grasp of the problems that confront him. But by comparing the puniness of what he knows and understands to the mind and the greatness of God. Understand your position in relation to God. And seeing this to stop thinking we are, we are something when we are nothing. And when you do that, two things will happen. The first thing is that you will, like Abraham, begin to trust God unreservedly. You will realize that he alone is equipped and able to grapple with and to solve all of the problems that confront you. 
and that his solutions are always the best solutions, even if we don't agree with them. But the second thing it will do is that it will, it will force you of necessity to praise him completely for who he is and unreservedly. You will become like Paul here as one who is given to praising God for who he is, for what he knows, for what he's revealed to us, for what he's done, for taking any mind at all of us in our lost and hopeless estate and judging us worthy of salvation. Oh, we will say to ourselves, what ignorant fools we are. How useless is our knowledge and our works. But great indeed is the Lord and all he has determined to do and all that he has done and will do. Perhaps I could put it like this. Next time we are puffed up with an arrogant view of our own knowledge. Let us see the value of these questions and begin to ask the questions of ourselves. Let us say to ourselves, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. And that ought to knock us right down to where we belong. And that is in the dust along with Job. At the end of Job, we find him saying, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I have laid my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Or as he says in chapter 42, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is it? Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There is the sinner in the presence of God, abhorring himself and praising God. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. The final thought is expressed in verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. See what it is. Or why it is. Man has nothing to offer to God. And why God needs nothing from man. For of him are all things. He's the creator. It's amazing how much of this I'm going to say again tonight. For through him, all things move and have their being. He's the sustainer. And to him are all things. That is, all things, everything is made for him. He is the first and the last. All things begin with him. They proceed by his power and they resolve in his glory. That's what Paul is saying. To whom be the glory forever? Mart Lloyd-Jones, the end of everything is the glory of God. And I would ask you now as we close, do you see it now? Do you see that all things must resolve in the glory of God? Hasn't Romans made you see it? Everything considered from every conceivable vantage point tends to and promotes the glory of God forever. Isn't that the first answer to the question of the shorter catechism? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. That isn't because we've set about to glorify God, you see. It's because everything must resolve in the glory of God because of who he is. Everything. The creation of the world, the fall of man, judgment upon the wicked, the salvation of sinners, all tend to and resolve in the glory of God forever. Why? Because 
It all depends upon him. It all originates in him. It all proceeds according to his plan and his counsel. And everything presses on to its highest end, even his own glory forever. He is God. How could it be otherwise? How could anything ever detract from his glorious being? He is before all. He is over all. He is in all. And all things lead to him as their end. His glory is forever. And nothing can ever diminish it in the least degree. Did you hear me? Nothing. Not my sin. Not yours. Not the schemes of the devil. Not the vast hosts of hell. Not the world. Nothing. Gather them all up and stand them against God and his greatness. And you will see. Nothing can detract from his will being done in all things and his glory forever being settled in the heavens, displayed for all to see. Do you see? It's the same, it's the same conclusion as Romans chapter 8 stated a little, a little differently. Chapter 8, nothing can separate me from the glory of God or from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Thank God. And in the same way we would say, Nothing in all the world can ever diminish or detract from the glory of God. No, all things will promote it. For from him and of him and to him are all things. And so the great lesson here, let me say again, it's twofold. It's to trust him with an absolute confidence. Why? Because of who he is. You see, when you begin to think of the problems that confront yourself in humanity, you will always despair. But when you think of God, you begin to take up a different perspective and then alongside of that trust and that confidence, which is another word for faith. You will walk by faith and not by sight. But alongside of that, you will rejoice in God always, as Paul says in Philippians. You'll be praising him always like this. You will stop. And this is what I'm saying. I'm saying it to myself. So I'm saying it to you. You will stop making so much of man in his puniness. You'll stop making so much of yourself. You'll stop making so much of the world. And you'll begin to consider God in his infinite greatness and glory. And you'll rejoice and praise him as God. I hardly know what all the point or what the point of all these sermons in Romans are if they don't make us do that. To trust in God, to rejoice in him, to praise him as God. And that leaves me with only one word left in the passage. Did you notice it? That is the word amen. Of all the years I've been listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, I remember... The first three sermons I listened to, and are you surprised that he preached three sermons on the passage I'm preaching one of? Uh, Just be impressed that I've been able to keep up with them all this time. Uh, I have to read several sermons to to my one each week. But many years ago, I listened to these three sermons. They were the first sermons I ever listened to of his. But of all the years that I've been listening to and reading Mark Lloyd-Jones sermons, and, and you all know by now that he's my favorite preacher to read and to listen to, I have never forgotten what he said at the end of his three sermons on Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And to me, it is a perfect summing up and closing of both the sermon and of the doctrinal portion. He simply asks the question, do you say amen to this? Do you say amen to the gospel of which the Apostle Paul was not ashamed and he was eager to preach to sinners? Do you say amen To the unfolding of the wrath of God from heaven that he expounds against sinners in chapters 1 through 3. Do you say amen to his method of saving sinners by a free and full justification? A gracious salvation, chapters 3 and 4. Do you say amen to the doctrine of assurance as it is outlined in chapters 5 through 8? Do you say amen to the mystery 
that was revealed to us in chapters 9 through 11. Do you say amen to this? Amen. And let us come to the table.